0: The Across Her Table podcast is constantly trying to tell stories that inspire. If you like what we are doing, could you please consider subscribing to us? We're a small indie podcast, and small gestures of support from you can go a really long way for us. And while you're at it, do you mind giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts? When you recommend us to a friend, it helps us build stronger networks and reach more people. We can impact change simply by spreading the word. So share the joy. This is Mifra Abid, and you're listening to Across Her Table, a podcast where we talk to amazing Canadian women with immigrant roots and how they're shaping the social narrative in this country. Join me as we talk to change makers from across Canada and listen to their remarkable stories. So, here's a little story on how I came across Zina Chaudhry. I was looking at potential guests for the podcast, and that's when I chanced upon a YouTube video of Zina giving a talk. I knew nothing about this young CEO, but I noticed how passionately she spoke about her mission and how detailed she was with the kind of help her organization, Sakina Homes, could provide for women and children. At that very moment, I knew I had to connect with her to know more. Let me just back up a little and tell our guests how we connected. And I was looking you up on Facebook and I saw this picture of you uh, on a boat. <laughs> so I saw a picture of you on Facebook with a boat and a ginormous fish in your hand. <laughs> <laughs> what is that about? Um, that's like um,
1: what I feel like a lot of people know me as. Um, like half the people know me as something else and half the people know me as this this Kajabi Muslim that uh, goes fishing and um, goes like camps outdoors and goes to the cottage and wins like fishing tournaments. So I really like that persona. I, I like it when people say that, oh, can you teach me how to fish or can you teach me, especially when it's Muslim women who say it. Like it makes me really happy because like every tournament I've ever entered, anytime I've ever gone to a bass open or salmon open, I'm the only visible, like, minority woman that, like, I've ever seen there.
0: Okay. So you obviously enjoy a sport that's not very popular with women and certainly not with Muslim women. How many eyebrows do you raise with that?
1: A lot, especially when you go ahead and you, like, win a tournament or you you place in one of the top three spots of a tournament. A field or a sport that is... Usually dominated by white males, they don't like it. They they are not very happy that uh, here's a visible minority, on top of that a Muslim, on top of that a hijabi coming and beating them at their own sport. It's not they they're they don't really like it. There are some who are very supportive and like have a lot of questions about how you got into it and like what your favorite lures are and like what kind of fishing you love to do. But then there's a lot of them who just are not happy with the fact that they've lost um, to a hijabi woman
0: i guess i have to learn a lot from you myself because we have a fishing license which we took on a whim and the best we've ever caught is the tree on the opposite side (laughs) and uh i'll tell you untangling was not an easy job
1: (laughs) yeah well you know honestly i've been doing it since um I, i can't remember which age it was it must have been before three um my my dad is very much so into the outdoors. We we're four sisters, like I'm the third of four girls. And my dad loves the outdoors. From a young child when he lived in Pakistan, he would go hunting and fishing with his brothers, even when they were quite young, like overnight trips. And my grandmother would tell us that they would go and she's like, I wouldn't hear from them and I wouldn't know where they are, but I always knew that they would be okay because they were all together. Like all the brothers were together. And so I think when it came time and he had his own children and he and he had four daughters, which, by the way, he says was his dua growing up was that he would oh. only have daughters. He's like, for some reason, I felt like that was going to be like what I like what I would excel at is like raising daughters. And uh, I believe he has. Um, oh. But so I was kind of the person who would always go with him. Um, I'd go, even if I wasn't hunting or fishing, like before I had my licenses, I would go and I would sit and watch him and his friends and like, you know, try to learn about how to like tie the knot, how to like, you know, like put a worm on a hook, how to like change the lure or the bait. Like I was very interested in these things. I just, for some reason from the get go, I love nature. And to this day I do. I love hiking, kayaking, um, fishing. Going on, like you know, anywhere to do with the outdoors, like is is my passion. So for me, that's kind of how I learned.
0: Yeah, I, I, the memory I have of fishing as a kid was when my uncle took my brother um, in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. He got all this fancy rod and everything, and they were out for hours, and they came back with so much fish. And it was like, wow, for like beginner's luck, or what? and my brother's like, no, we didn't catch anything. We went to the store and got these. <laughs> <laughs> At least he told you the truth. My uncle, I don't think has forgiven him yet. <laughs> <laughs> At least he told you the truth. Yeah, he was, he was just like eight or nine years old. So <laughs> I didn't think not telling the truth is an option for him. <laughs> <laughs> That's so sweet. So Zia, you also love podcasts. I do. So uh, what kind of genres do you listen to or what's on your playlist? So honestly, business ones.
1: In my room, I have one entire wall is just bookshelves. Like, from wall to wall, from ceiling to floor, it's just... And I can tell you, over half of those books are business books. Like, that's what I love. So when it comes to podcasts, naturally, I was drawn towards that as well. One of my favorite podcasts um, that I like listening to, because I think it has a lot of good information in this field on it, is actually Jenna Kutcher's Gold Digger Podcast. And that's G-O-A-L, not G-O-L-D. So... (laughs) It's a really good podcast, in my opinion, and I love listening to it. Um, believe it or not, I did also listen to an episode of yours.
0: Ooh! Thank you.
1: Before, like, I had agreed to be on the show, and it was before I think you had even approached me to be on uh, on across the table. Um, and that that goes to show that the people that you're bringing on, like, have a network of people who love to hear from them. Um, and that's why, you know, we we, we want to listen to what you have to say and, you know, the people that you bring on and the topics that you choose to discuss are very, very important uh, for our community. So I think that's, you know, the biggest pull towards your podcast is that it's things that we should all know and we should all be aware of. And, you know, they're good, bad and ugly. We, we want to know it. And you're the one who brings it to the
0: table for us. Oh, thank you. That's that's a lot of validation, you know. <laughs> thank you. Because there are a lot of moments when I've been second-guessing myself and saying, is it even worth it? Is anyone listening? So thank you. That means a lot, actually.
1: No, absolutely. Like, you know what? I know validation is a big thing. We all go through that um, piece of imposter syndrome that, you know, I kind of just fell into this. Why am I doing this? Are people actually listening? Do people actually like it? And I'll tell you right now, from someone from an outside perspective, like, I actually really do enjoy your podcast. So um, you do a phenomenal job. And I think the people that you bring on your show, and I'm not talking about myself, but I'm talking about your previous your <laughs> guests, like are people that we all want to hear about. People like success stories, people who want to share, like, you know, our community, we, we like to kind of talk about the doom and gloom a lot, but there's so much to be celebrated, like so many women to be celebrated of what they've done uh, in different sectors, and different walks of life. And I think this is one way to do it. And I applaud you in the way that you've done it.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Let's talk about your trajectory. Now, how does a law grad who's also a sailing and fishing enthusiast become the CEO of a woman's shelter?
1: Um, people don't believe me when I say it, but I kind of fell into it. Um, I went to do my master's of law in human rights law um, in Wales, UK. And when I came back, um, I had this idea of, you know, I wanted to work Um, for a large organization like the UN or the EU or something like that. And I came back and, you know, lo and behold, my mom brings this case up with me. And it's, you know, a family friend of ours. And she says, can you help this person out? And I said, you know, family law really isn't my forte. Like, I don't know what to tell you. And she's like, no, just help her like navigate the system. She's like, you know, the social service system, you know, like, you know, like in terms of like the courts, like what happens and all that. So she just needs some support. So I said, okay. So I, you know, kind of helped her. And as I was helping her navigate the system, I realized that, oh my God, there is virtually nothing out here for you know, South Asian women, let alone, Arab women or Muslim women. So why do we why are there no services targeted towards them with their languages with their cultural sensitivity with their religious sensitivity. So for me, that was a really big thing that I saw. Well,
0: that's an unusual path you took there. So what happened next? After that,
1: um, you know, I, I kind of thought of the idea of, you know, how do we do this? How do we, you know, and I was like, maybe I should put a resources together. Maybe I should, you know, do this. And then at that time, I came across, like I was donating some stuff and I came across an organization that was planning on kind of dealing with this, like saying, like, let's open a transitional home for Muslim women. And so I expressed my interest and kind of my background to them uh, when I went to go donate some things and they said, oh, yeah, we'll get back to you. Uh, I didn't hear back from them for maybe even a year and a half, two years when I saw job posting online uh for a role with them. So I applied, got the job and you know, that's kind of how I fell into the sector. And a few years later, you know, I saw more gaps um that were being addressed and you know, it was it was a matter of you know, we are getting calls from these Muslim women who need assistance. And, you know, can we provide them with support outside of actual physical transitional homes? Um, and the organization I was with was doing great work, like, I, like you know, fantastic work with bringing these women in and making sure that they got the services they needed. But I saw a huge gap of women who didn't necessarily need to move into a transitional home, or like geographically could not move into one of the transitional homes. Um, and so remote casework for me was a really big thing that I wanted to focus on. And I thought that, you know, we could add more services as well in home and out, outside of the home.
0: Zina also talked about another plan she has of setting up the first ever foster home for Muslim children.
1: when you know Sakina Homes was being created we never thought that it's only for women we thought you know that's where we're going to start and eventually we're going to grow past that. And that's, you know, we, we're we in the process right now with uh, the ministry to get our license uh, to become the first ever Muslim fostering agency in North America. Um, and then after, get our license for um, becoming the first group home for Muslim kids in North America as well. And that's because we've seen such a huge demand uh, since we've kind of started Sakina Homes of young girls um, and even young boys calling us for assistance and help. Uh, where they may be, you know, either living at home and being abused, or they may be living in a foster family with non-Muslims and saying, you know, there's always alcohol, we don't, there's pork on the table, and we don't know what to do. So, you know, definitely assisting Muslims however we possibly can. That's our mandate, and that's our goal. And inshallah, we hope that we're going to be able to, uh, you know, work towards that.
0: What happens if... Supposedly there is a victim and, you know, she doesn't want to just break off ties, but she just needs assistance or she needs a solution. What kind of supports uh, like, could she access?
1: Definitely one of the biggest things that Sakina Holmes brought to the table was we were the first sheltering organization to bring reconciliation uh, to the table and say that if you want this service, it's here for you. We would get a lot of women uh, coming to us saying that, you know, there's no physical abuse. I think it's just misunderstandings. And we need someone who we can have that we can go to and get this counseling from and, you know, go through this process with them. And so because it was demanded so much, uh, we decided to roll out a reconciliation program. So for us, Sakina Holmes, you know, was born out of a necessity of gaps that were in the system. You know, for us, that's really important because there's nothing better than bringing two people together stronger than ever in a healthy relationship. Um, It's not always that, you know, that, you know, she's left her home and that's it. Don't ever go back to him, divorce him, leave him. You know, we hear about that a lot. Um, So for us, it was not that it was like, okay, hang on. If they're saying that they weren't physically abused, that there was just misunderstandings, that there's a third party involved. And what they need is our conciliation and some like marital counseling. Why are we not willing to provide that to them? Why are we going straight to here's how you do your divorce and here's how you get alimony. And like, why are we doing that? So that's what that's what our entire thing was that it's being demanded from us. Like we should now rise to the, the occasion and actually give it to those who need it.
0: That's actually amazing because uh, a lot of people don't approach help because they think it's going to be either or, you know, it's so it's like a sense of finality. And because they can't confront that, they don't seek any help. So, I think that's a great middle path that you're kind of discovering, you know?
1: No, absolutely. That's, you know, and a lot of our services are dictated by what the demand is. Um, We started a life skills uh, program that allows the women. And children who live in our home to access services that learn, they can learn about budgeting, they can learn about public transit, they can learn about credit cards, getting your first credit card, getting your first cell phone. Because a lot of these women don't ever have experience in this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So for us, I think that was a big thing too. Like, you know, let them dictate what they need from us. So that's where this life skills program was born from. That's where legal services was born from. That's where, you know, reconciliation was born from. Because it's their recovery that we are trying to help them with. And they're, you know, Them getting back on their feet, so let them tell us what they need.
0: I want to circle back to the to the topic of abuse. Actually, you know, a lot of people think that my family and my inner circle cannot possibly have an incident of abuse. How do you deal with that kind of denial? Does it have repercussion? Like, do people tend to dismiss victims or overlook abusers because of this denial?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see it every day. But I'm gonna. I want to start this off by saying that uh, the taboo about uh, abuse is not um, special for us as Muslims South Asians Arabs it's not it's not special to us it's it's you know it, it's actually widespread um, a lot of different um, communities um, ethnicities cultures religions see this as well um, so I do want to you know definitely make sure that we all know that you know we are not the only ones who see uh, abuse for some reason still as a taboo topic to talk about mm-hmm. and you know i think the fact that we do consider it as a taboo topic and we don't want to talk about it, we don't want to uh, you know understand it and come face to face with it and figure out how to address it because we believe it won't happen to us or someone that we know is so sad because you never know what someone is going through it could be the person that you're praying next to it could be your neighbor it could be your sibling it could be your mother it could be your brother it could be anybody um And that's one thing, it rarely rears its ugly head uh, out in public. And I think during the pandemic, we've definitely seen this as well. So for us, you know, the more we talk about it, and the more I encourage people to talk about domestic violence, the more we talk about it, the more power we give to those survivors, the less we talk about it, the more power we give to those abusers. So I think definitely when we take a look at this, and we say, let's talk about it, it's not because it's a cool thing to talk about, or because it's fun to talk about. If you pretend like it's not there, survivors won't know what's out there to help them. They won't know that there's people out there who are going to support them through this. There's such a stigma uh, around this, and it's considered such a dirty word that you know I was abused. Even if you're if you're not the abuser, it's considered so dirty for you to say you know I was abused. And for that, we need to ensure that we erase that stigma. And our job as a community, as a society, is to provide those who have gone through this. With as much help as they possibly need or want because we fail them in the get go and now we can't fail them again.
0: But this is the taboo bit. What about the guilt? The victim may say, Oh, should I be seeking help in the first place? Do I become the villain of the story if I do? I've talked to some women and it's like, What if it's not as bad as it looks like? What if it's all in my head? And what if I'm just breaking up my family because my tolerance levels are low? Do you deal with that kind of. Uh, uh- oh, absolutely.
1: I think. On a daily basis, I think even women, they always, you know, will come back around to that. Like, you know, but did I give it my best shot? Did I have enough patience? Could I have put up with it more? Could I have hidden it from the children? And this is, I think, where the issue is. Like, when we make a survivor of abuse feel guilty, um, that is, I think, the worst thing that we could possibly do. Um, Women stay in these situations. Um, much until even sometimes the time of them dying um, or being murdered because they feel like they need to stay as a backbone of the family. I can't tell you how many women have come to us and they've said, our mothers have told us that it's death before divorce. We'd rather see you dead than see you divorced. You are the backbone of this family. You will not break your family apart. You will not leave your children without a two-parent home. You will not do this. We went through it. And now that you're going through it, you will do exactly what we did and you will suck it up and you will live it. Um, And for me, I think that's such a scary concept because abuse is such a vast, vast spectrum. You know, there is financial abuse, physical abuse, psychological abuse, emotional abuse. There's so many different types of abuse, but there's such a variance of the intensity of that abuse. You know, we've had women who have come to us. Um, who have called us and we've gone to them and they've been caked in blood. Mm. Um, We've had women who have said, you know, I don't know. Like, this is what I feel like, you know, I feel like it's emotional abuse, psychological abuse, but I don't know. Like, is, is, am I tricking myself into thinking this? Am I reading into things? And the thing is like, if you question it enough and you look at it enough, there must be something there that makes you feel like this. Mm -hmm. There must be something happening that makes you feel like this is happening. And if you don't have an open communication with the abuser like whether it's your spouse or your parent or you know your in-laws then it's something that you need to get I, I believe external you know help from whether it's reconciliation whether it's counseling whatever it may be it's something that you can't live with that kind of feeling it's not a fair thing to live with and you know we all know the statistic about how women will leave an abusive situation seven times before they leave for good and I I believe that that statistic may be wrong at this point I think that they leave a lot more than that. We've had women who come to us and go back and come back, come to us and go back. And that's because they, you know, there's a cycle of abuse. There's that honeymoon period of, you know, everything's gonna be fine. I'm so sorry that I did this or said this. It won't ever happen again. And then that abuse starts again. So I think definitely they feel a lot of guilt, especially in those honeymoon periods. And that's when they feel like, okay, I should go back because it's a matter of my children. But little do they know that their kids are witnessing this and seeing this and hearing this. And the the worst part is that sometimes that cycle of abuse recreates in their own lives. Uh, Those young girls who have seen their mother be abused will allow abuse to happen to themselves. Those young boys who have seen their fathers being abusive might also be abusive to their spouses in the future. You know, your kids are watching this and witnessing this, and it's going to affect them one day as well.
0: Have talked about several times. I've been watching you about how the number of uh, reported abuse cases has skyrocketed during the pandemic. So, two questions why do you think that's happening? And number two, how is Sakina dealing with this surge?
1: So, when last March in 2020, when uh, the pandemic first hit, that's I think when I would say that everything kind of came to head. Uh, through that, we saw our numbers, our call volume increased 700%. a very large increase for us we you know we saw not only were people calling because the abuse had gotten worse for them some people were calling because the abuse had actually just started they had never been through this before their husband was never verbally abusive to them never physically abusive but now that was starting and a lot of it had to do i believe with you know the whole thing of social and physical isolation these people were locked in homes um, where it was never meant to be like, your, your life is never meant to be like that, where you're locked in a house with just the people that you live with, and you can't see anyone else, can't do anything else, um, you know, for the entire time. And we saw it go to an extreme, like an, an unacceptable extreme. We had a woman call us, and she said, you know, my husband has sent away uh, our children to my parents' house, telling my parents that I have covid so the kids need to be at their house. And she's like, but I don't. And she, like, the reason why he did that is because now he has free reign and a blank check to do whatever he wants. Um, He can, you know, hit me on my face if he wants. He can leave a scar. He can leave a bruise. And no one's there to witness it. The kids are not here. It's just me and him. She's like, I'm scared. I've, she's like, I've never been this scared for my life because she's like, he's uncontrollable at this point. So I think definitely it was not only the intensity, but the number of abusive situations that was rising. And I think it wasn't on, was only physical abuse that we were looking at. We had young girls calling us saying that, you know, we don't have food at home. We would normally eat at school because our friends would bring us some food. And then after school, we'd go to our friends' homes and we'd eat there. But now that we can't do that because of COVID, we're not sure how to eat. And we just need food because, you know, our brother or our father won't give us food to eat. So there was just so much happening. And it was such different cases and such different variances that, you know, it was, it felt like, I'll be honest, when we were in it, like in May and June, it felt like we would never get out of it. It felt like we were drowning. Um, It felt like, you know, every time we picked up a call, there was like five calls that we missed. Mm -hmm. So. For us, like, it was like, how do we get a control? Like, how can we do, like, how can we help people when we can't even handle it ourselves? And that's when we, you know, got some grant money and hired more people on to, to, to come onto the team because we just could not handle uh, what was happening. And Alhamdulillah, you know, as the year went on, we saw those numbers kind of plateau. And we saw that, you know, we were able to now handle the call volume coming in and we were, we were better equipped Uh, that if we were ever to see a rise of those numbers again, that we were better equipped to deal with them this time. Um, And alhamdulillah, I'm so, so blessed and happy to share that, you know, we never had a single outbreak in any of our transitional homes. We are very, very lucky in that respect. We have every policy procedure in place. We get the houses, each house sanitized uh, twice a month, deep cleaned as well. Uh, Same with our office space gets sanitized every single week. So for us, it, you know, it was a really big thing to ensure that we're not only helping those out there, but we're helping and making sure that we're taking care of everybody who works uh, with Sakina Homes as well.
0: There's so much going on here and obviously this requires resources. So how do you manage the funding? Because obviously, obviously these resources cost uh, money. So how do you arrange for that?
1: Absolutely. So, so from day one, we've been privately funded. That means a donor like me and you will give us their zakat or their sadhaka and we will run based on that. And that means that, you know, we never got any government funding. However, when COVID hit, um, government funding was made available for emergency funds Mm -hmm. to help offset these costs of hiring more staff on, more hours, PPE, whatever we would need. Uh, Government funding was made available to violence against women, um, shelters and traditional homes. So Alhamdulillah, we did get funding from that. um, And that definitely did help us kind of, you know, alleviate that burden. We have brilliant partners, though. I have to say that Alhamdulillah, in this community, we have fantastic organizational partners. Um, including but not limited to the Muslim Association of Canada, who has supported us from day one and always given us funding for our remote work. Um, Ask Foundation is a, a charitable organization that actually funds the entire Brampton project. Uh, we have Penny Appeal, who you know has supported us with so many different projects that we have, and it lati- like you know the latest project that we've helped with is our foster agency project and our London transitional home. So you know, even if our donations, the vast majority are coming from the public, like the, you know, the general public, we are so lucky that there's so many organizations that believe in our vision and believe in our mission, that they also want to be part of it and help us and help these women um, who we're helping as well.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I can see two routes here. Uh, One is if someone wants to help Sakina, what should they do? But more importantly, what should we as a community do to mitigate this problem in the first place? The cycle of abuse, the, the culture of abuse, if there exists one. So how, how do we address that? So I
1: think the, for, for the first question, if, they, if anyone wants to help Sikina homes, there's a few ways. The number one thing is make du'a for us and for those that we help. And then, inshallah, we are able to continue helping those that need it. And the number of those who are in need decreases over time. That's our goal. Um, In 20 years, I want to get to that point where we can say that we did such a good job at being proactive that we can shut down this traditional home or we can shut down this project or this program in this region because we've done such a good job at educating the community and doing the work like that. Um, The next thing that people can do is always donate their Zakat and their Sadiqah. We are Zakat and Sadiqah eligible. Uh, We do separate both um, funds and make sure that we use them in the best manner possible and in the correct manner um, as um, dictated in Islam. Uh, people can also volunteer with us. Um, and I think one of the biggest things is get to know about what we do so that if you ever come across someone who needs our services, you know what we do and you can refer them to us and we can inshallah help them as well. Um, in terms of what can we do as a community? I think, again, education is such a big part of it. Educating yourself to see the first signs of abuse, educating, um, ourselves or our children or our loved ones before they get married on what the, what are the rights and responsibilities? of you as a husband what are the rights responsibilities of you as a wife as a mother-in-law as a daughter-in-law as a son-in-law because i think a lot of the the reasons why people come to us is because they don't understand in islam what their rights responsibilities are so so i think that's our biggest the biggest thing that we look at is you know how do we do this And i think education is the biggest thing here
0: that was zina Chaudhry, ceo of Sakina Homes. So much to unpack after listening to her. If you would like to be part of the solution to stop the cycle of abuse, do consider some of her recommendations. It's not a one-woman solution. It takes a village. This is me, Mifra Abid, signing off. Until next time. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and basically wherever you get your podcast from. We're, of course, also available on our website, AcrossHerTable.com. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us, folks.